This is the Imperfect Buddha podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast, Donald S. Lopez. Thank you for coming on, Donald. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I said in an email or two a while back that I've been a fan of your work for quite some time. And I'm going to ask, add another question in which was unprepared, but I think it's, it's worth doing so. Many of the books you've written have sort of straddled that ground between, you know, appealing to the general public and, and also providing interesting research and ideas and thought for your fellow academics. Was that a deliberate approach that you took to your writing? And, and how do you feel about the impact your books may or may not have had on practitioners, Buddhist practitioners and the general public? Well, when I look back uh, over my my writing, uh, I certainly was trained uh, at the University of Virginia, where we learned the kind of uh, high tech Gelugpa philosophy uh, through Jeffrey Hopkins, and uh, my early work really came directly out of that tradition. Uh, I think it's when I got to uh, doing Prisoners of Shangri La, which we published in 1998, uh, I made a decision to make uh, a change in my writing style. Uh, one in which uh, this was a time of relatively high theory. Uh, in Buddhist studies, theory came rather late. Uh, we we're always a little belated in our field vis-a-vis uh, -vis other uh, sort of trends in the academy. And I decided that I would uh, kind of bury the theory. That is, uh, although Foucault and, and others had inspired me in many ways uh, in the writing of that book, I decided really not to mention those names, but to write in such a way that those who were, as we said at the time, hip to theory would kind of get that. But would, it would not be off-putting to someone who was just interested in picking up the book and learning something about the topic. And so I tried to develop a prose style in which uh, I, I was really writing for two audiences at the same same time. How successful I've been is, is a question for others to, to answer. But <laughs> right. that really happened at the, at, at the time of, uh, of, of doing Prisoners. Yeah. And that's the first book of yours I read. And, and that certainly comes across. And, and as an early reader, I was quite young when I first read that. In fact, it's crazy to think how long ago it was written. I remember it being an exciting and fun read. And that was absolutely unexpected at the time. The way the book came about was that uh, Helen Tworkoff, who was the uh, editor at Tricycle at the time, wrote to me and she said, uh, there seems to be this Tibet thing going on. That was the extent of her uh, description. And I think someone needs to write something about it. And would you write something for us on the topic? So I wrote a, an essay in Tricycle called um, uh, New Age Orientalism, the Case of Tibet. And that was kind of the seed for the prisoner's book, uh, which, as, as, as uh, you mentioned, was published in 1998. Uh, a 20th anniversary edition just came out from the press uh, last year. And so it, it's had some staying power, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it doesn't surprise me. I'd like to ask one of the few personal questions, which is about yourself and your relationship with Buddhism and, and Buddhist practice. Are you a practicing Buddhist yourself? And if so, what practice do you follow? And how has your relationship 
to it or Buddhism more generally changed over the years. And I'll sneak one extra one in there, which is what challenges still come up for you in your relationship with practice? Well, uh, before I answer, I guess I would observe that I think the term practicing Buddhist is very likely a modern Western locution. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not a term that I think that I can think of that would occur in Tibetan or Sanskrit. And so the fact that we use this term is interesting. I I think it probably is related somehow to practicing Catholic and uh, observant Jew. Right. And when we think about those terms, a practicing Catholic would be someone who uh, accepts the sacraments of the church. Uh, An observant Jew is someone who keeps kosher and uh, goes to temple on the Sabbath. Uh, And so both of those are are questions of law and of ritual. And in Buddhism, uh, I think one would think about, well, has one taken refuge? Uh, What transmissions and initiations have you received in the Tibetan case? And so the fact that we're using this term, I think, is interesting sociologically. Uh, And of course, in the case of Buddhism, uh, when someone says, are you a practicing Buddhist? uh, One translates that into the question, do you meditate? And again, as many scholars have pointed out, meditation has always been something of a virtuoso practice in Buddhism from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Of course, Buddhist lay people, for the most part, have not meditated over the course of uh, these two and a half millennia. And many Buddhist monks and nuns uh, never meditated. Certainly in Tibet, that would be the case. And so the fact that Buddhism has morphed into meditation uh, in the West uh, in the 20th century, I think, is interesting. I'm not trying to avoid your question, so (laughs) let me me answer that. so, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of the 60s. Uh, uh, I was someone who read uh, Ram Dass's book, Be Here Now, when it came out. Right, uh, yes. At that time, we were reading D.T. Suzuki and trying to figure out how to do Zazen, uh, just kind of, you know, faking it. Um, then uh, Jeffrey Hopkins, my dissertation advisor, came to uh, University of Virginia when I was uh, a senior in college, uh, he was had saw no distinction between uh, the academy and the monastery. And so we developed a curriculum that was very much along the lines of the Gelukpa system. And he taught meditation to his, to his graduate students. Uh, and so, of course, I participated then. Uh, I went to India in 1978, spent a year there, primarily living in, uh, in a monastery in South India. And uh, during that year, I took in the Murlam, and after the Losar, the Dalai Lama gave uh, the three major tantric initiations uh, for the Gelukpas, the Sangye Jiksum, it's called in Tibetan, so Guya Samaja, Chakra Sambara, and, uh, and Yamantaka. So I took those in a public setting. Uh, he came to the States in 81 and gave the Kala Chakra for the first time in the West in Madison, Wisconsin. I took that initiation. And so I had received uh, by that time uh, four major tantric uh, initiations from the Dalai Lama. And as you know, uh, when one takes these initiations, there are these things called kailen or commitments that one uh, is agrees to, to follow. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they involve doing certain meditations, reciting mantras and so forth several times a day. And uh, I was frankly having trouble doing that and maintaining an academic career, had a small child. Uh, and I saw the Dalai Lama in 1984 and had an audience with him. Uh, and I, I told him because I'd received the initi- initiations from him that I was having trouble uh, keeping these up. And he said, uh, yeah, I know. And so <laughs> I, felt, I felt very sheep 
sheepish uh, complaining about this when, uh, of course, he holds more initiations and transmissions than anyone living in the world and uh, gets up at four o'clock in the morning and meditates till noon in order to to keep those commitments. And so I was complaining about uh, my problems. And he said, uh, he said, it's difficult to sort of do this and be a lay person and, and live in the world. Uh, but what's important is to, as he said, to think about it as a as a fire and you sort of let the let it burn down where you keep the ashes kind of glowing and then he said when you get older when you have time uh and you've retired then you can uh, cause that flame to rise up again so uh i took that to heart and of course now i'm older and so i really should be uh, getting the flame back burning again but i've yet to do that so uh Mm -hmm. so that's that's the story uh the challenges that have come up are are exactly what what i've just said Mm -hmm. uh so uh as one is a, a scholar of Buddhism, one learns about uh, the history of the tradition. The question of historical consciousness becomes, I think, very a very important one. And that I think that's the challenge, I think, that, I, that I'm constantly sort of struggling with. Which is an interesting form of practice in itself, right? Yes. Uh, it's, it's really finding a way to look at the tradition historically and tend to answer all the, ask all the hard questions and, and, and face the difficult answers and still find ways to d- derive meaning from the tradition. And I, I, I think I've been able to do that, or at least I try to. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a challenge that's being shared by so many people as we live in this age where we have such access to historical awareness and knowledge about the formation of traditions and and obviously the relationship that you mentioned before between modernity and our, our modern ideals and the way we apply those to our own conceptions and, and ways of engaging with Buddhism, whether Tibetan or Southeast Asian or Japanese. It's, uh, it's fascinating stuff. I think that's one of the reasons why I've really enjoyed bringing on a range of academics to talk about this kind of thing, because although some of this knowledge has, has become more, let's say, par for the course for the more educated long-term practitioner, sometimes fills with a lot of a lot of practitioners, and I'm using that word again consciously, <laughs> kind of keep that stuff at bay because it can also be quite threatening. Well, I was uh, I was at a, a conference uh, in Colorado a couple of years ago, and the organizers uh, paired me with a person they called a, a practitioner, and they wanted mm-hmm. the scholar and the practitioner to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. I was cast in that role and uh, at some point asked, well, what, what did the scholars say? Well, of course, mm-hmm. there are a thousand things to say, and I didn't quite know quite how, how to begin. Uh, I said, well, I think scholars would say three things. One is that uh, the Buddha did not teach the Mahayana Sutras, uh, and there was an audible gasp uh, from the <laughs> audience. And then I said the second thing is that uh, the Buddha did not teach the, the Tantras. And someone fainted. And uh, and then I said, <laughs> and the third thing is, uh, Padmasambhava did, did not bury those texts in Tibet. Yeah. And someone vomited blood. So uh, it was, uh, it was a, a, a sort of a tense moment there. And it was interesting to see sort of the reaction from the audience to say things that are just common knowledge among uh, scholars of Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism, uh, and, and yet uh, caused uh, quite a stir at that particular setting. Yeah. I don't know what it's like for you. I'm always fascinated by the role such myths and fantasies play, um, not just, you know, in, in terms of a practice and, you know, the, the degree of faith that they might have in it, but also the, the need, in a sense, for people to still maintain these kind of these magical stories because they give a sense of, of something extra, which I, I don't need personally, but I'm still fascinated that so many people do. 
Well, it is the case. I mean, I think part of it really derives directly from the tradition, uh, and, right, and that's yeah. something that we all we always have to confront, which is that basically the Buddha knew everything. Uh, yeah. His enlightenment, his enlightenment in, in, encompasses all knowledge, and therefore anything that is said subsequently must he must have known, whether he said it or not. And so there is a constant retrospection to this moment of silence, this this experience, which in some ways cannot be articulated, as the tradition itself says, mm-hmm. and yet that articulation has continued over the centuries as people try to innovate, which they must do in the tradition, but there can, it can never be called innovation. It must always be called just an elaboration of the Buddhist own enlightenment. These kind of topics that we're talking about already, they obviously fascinated you, they fascinate you and have fascinated you. And I think that links well to the second question I wanted to ask, which, as I mentioned, I've enjoyed reading your books for a variety of reasons. And I must confess as well that sometimes they've made uncomfortable reading, perhaps not to the degree of your, the audience members that you mentioned before, <laughs> but because I've spent you know considerable time in my younger years holding on to those magical myths myself. I, I get the impression that you have fun thinking about them, studying them and writing about them. And the question, again, is a two-part one. The first one is, you know, how do you normally go about picking the topics that you choose to write about? Is it primarily one of pleasure and interest? And I noticed that actually you've got a couple of new books coming out this year, if I'm not mistaken. Amazon is is putting them down as uh, being issued in October and May 2019. So would you like to mention perhaps uh, something briefly about those two as well? Uh, yes. So uh, the two that are in press, uh, one is uh, is another book about the Lotus Sutra. So uh, as you know, uh, I had done this book on the Tibetan Book of the Dead uh, for this series called uh, Lives of Religious Books. So this was uh, – that particular case was uh, the Princeton University Press coming to me and saying, We're, we've decided to do little uh, reception histories of the major classics in the field of religion across the globe. Mm. And so we want to have uh, Bonhoeffer's letter. And uh, and Saint Augustine, and we want to have uh, Septuagint. We want to have the Book of Mormon. And so among the first three, we'd like to have the Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, and we'd like you to, to do that book. And uh, I had written about the Tibetan Book of the Dead in, um, in Prisoner of Shangri-La years ago, and I thought, well, I, I kind of have said what there is to say about that, or I, I thought that, but they were quite insistent. So I decided to go ahead and do the book, and there I was able to kind of link it to Joseph Smith and the Mormons and questions about religious authenticity, as we've been talking about. Because that was not my choice, I said uh, – I'll do this, but I'd like to do another book in the series of my own choosing, and that turned out to be the Lotus Sutra. So I did a book on that, and that book then evolved into a project with a a fabulous scholar of Japanese Buddhism at Princeton, uh, Jackie Stone. And so we're doing a book uh, called uh, Two Buddhas Seated Side by Side. Uh, this is this is comes from the Lotus Sutra when the the, the famous scene where the, the this the stupa emerges out of the earth and there's a living Buddha inside. Uh, the door opens and Shakyamuni comes and sits down next to the Buddha. It's very it's depicted all the time in East Asian Buddhist art. So this book will be uh, my attempt to kind of go through the the sutra chapter by chapter and talk about what was so radical about the Lotus for an Indian community of of the day. Mm. Uh, and this comes back to our question about inspiration and innovation. 
Asian. And then uh, Jackie Stone was looking at uh, the long tradition of East Asian commentary on the Lotus Sutra, uh, ending in the great uh, figure Nichiren, uh, upon whom she's, she's an expert. And so she gives her take on what Nichiren says about each chapter. So we're sort of looking at a quote-unquote original take on the sutra and then how it was understood uh, in Japan uh, more than a millennium later mm-hmm. to look at the formal role of commentary. So that's that'll be out, uh, I believe, in October. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other book is, again, something that I was asked to do by a Tibetan friend, uh, a, a person called Denzin Dendong, uh, who is the grandson of a Tibetan aristocrat and general. And while this uh, general was fighting the Chinese in Kham in the 1930s, uh, he was near a Pelpung Monastery, and there he commissioned a set of 85 paintings uh, of the Mahasiddhas. So as you know, there's 84 Mahasiddhas, but uh, the uh, their guru is, is Vajradhara, so it's the 84 plus Vajradhara. And uh, these were painted and never, they were taken back to Lhasa. He passed away. The paintings came down through the family, never published. So he asked me to do a book uh, in which we would publish those 85 paintings. And I was able to find a painting guide written by Tadanatha himself in which he talks about how to paint each of the, each of the 84. So that translation is there, and then all the paintings are reproduced. So I think that's called uh, Seeing the Sacred in Samsara. So that'll be out uh, fairly soon as well. Nice. So did you want to add something else about how you go about choosing your topics? When I think about my work, a lot of it has been just what I see as kind of service to the field. Uh, these are things for scholars of Buddhism and for those of us who teach courses on Buddhism at the undergraduate level. So I've done uh, various anthologies. I did the uh, Buddhist scriptures for for Penguin. That was something I was asked to do. I did something for the Norton Anthology of World Religions, also asked to do by them. This giant dictionary I did with Robert Buswell was, again, something that was requested. So as I'm talking about these things, I'm, I'm always giving you examples of things I was asked to do, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> things that I, that I wanted to do myself, I think would include uh, my uh, my book, uh, both books on the on the Heart Sutra, especially Elaboration on Emptiness, the second one, um, all my work on Gendon Trimbell, which we can mm-hmm. talk about mm-hmm. at some point. It's something that I had really very much wanted to do. I feel a, a close affinity with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the work on Buddhism and science, uh, the first book was just called that, uh, and and um, just as that book was being published, I was invited by Yale to give the Terry Lectures. This is a famous series of uh, lectures going back uh, to the early 20th century on religion and science. And so I did the Scientific Buddha. Those were the Terry Lectures. So uh, those are the, the more recent ones that come to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Is there something you're still burning to write at some point but haven't quite had the, the time? Uh, well, so I just finished a, a big translation of a compendium, a c- compendium of a Buddhist philosophy by the, the famous uh, 18th century uh, Gelugpa scholar, Jangyarubai Dorje, who was the uh, teacher of the Tenlong Emperor. So that'll be coming out in Tutan Jimba's Library of Tibetan Classics uh, fairly soon. And then uh, once that's out, I've been thinking about, uh, I've been fascinated by the figure of, of Ananda, uh, the Buddha's uh, uh, cousin and personal attendant. I, he's just such an interesting figure in terms of uh, his closeness to the Buddha, his devotion, the way he was treated after the Buddha's uh, passage into nirvana. So I'd like to do something on him, maybe focusing on the, the trial of Ananda that took place uh, in the first council and the, and the various charges brought against him and uh, think about uh, some sort of a, a courtroom drama from a Buddhist perspective. 
Yeah, that sounds great. History is fascinating, and yet so many students find it utterly dull, which this seems a travesty to me, at least. And I wonder, what are the sorts of questions you use to stimulate interest in these historical topics you teach and a richer engagement with the material at hand? Well, I mean, I think the the one thing that I always try to point out and all scholars of Buddhism do is that uh, we really don't have any precise idea about what the Buddha himself taught, right? So nothing that he said was written down for perhaps 400 years after his death. And so what does one do with that? How, do, how does one consider a tradition in which the, the words of the founder and exactly what they were and the historical circumstances of their production are, are always in question? So I think to have that open question from the beginning is very important. But also to to point out, it's a, it's a truism, but I think all, all, often worth repeating is that, that all, all timeless truths are, are uttered in time. Mm. <laughs> that is, every claim that's made about the timeless by any philosopher or religious figure is, is made at a particular historical moment. And I think we know from our own memories and our uh, study of, of, of recent history, we know how much the circumstances of the historical moment uh, go into the creation of that of that particular utterance. And so there's no reason to believe that those circumstances were not also in play in the formation of these truths that we now look at as timeless in the case of Buddhism. And so to the extent that we can determine what those circumstances are, are are I think the, the interest and the power of those statements in some ways is actually enhanced rather than diffused. Uh, you can take the example of, of mindfulness. Uh, you know, Eric Braun has written the, the, this great book on the birth of mindfulness in which he shows that the, what we think about as mindfulness uh, today and what sees advertised all over the world now is really something that began in Burma in the early 20th century. Uh, we don't have much evidence of that particular practice going back before that. And he also shows very clearly that that practice is the direct result of British colonialism. Uh, and so, again, that doesn't mean that mindfulness is not beneficial for the various ills that it is, is said to cure. Uh, but it's it's important, I think, not to always be projecting everything back, again, to that silent, uh, irretrievable moment of the Buddha's enlightenment to somehow validate a particular practice. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find there's general interest? I mean, do people start to change the way they think about Buddhism once they start getting into this history? Well, you know, I, I do this primarily in my undergraduate lecture class, Introduction mm. to Buddhism, and I, I think that uh, students go through a certain uh, cer certain stages uh, in the class, uh, one of which is, is I think, disillusionment. Mm. Uh, and from one perspective, I mean, disillusionment is what, what Buddhism is about, right? Removing illusions. Uh, and so I think there's some element of kind of corrupting the use of corrupting the youth of Athens that takes place in the early part of the course. Uh, but I think, I, at least it's my hope, that, that as the semester develops, they develop a, a kind of uh, appreciation which is uh, more nuanced, more sophisticated, and I hope uh, more lasting for them than the usual kind of romance. Yeah. It's, it is the case, as I wrote about uh, in my um, first book on the Lotus Sutra, that I, I uh, the way I teach the class is that uh, I have them uh, submit questions. It's a big class, about 300 students, and uh, mm -hmm. they submit questions to me on index cards uh, uh, at the end of each lecture, which I then try to address some of those at the next uh, at next session. And when I teach the Lotus Sutra and the way in which the, the early Buddhism is, is rejected by the Buddha in, in the second and third chapters there of the, of the Sutra, the students are just outraged. Uh, and and, and they, they just be, 
become so incensed that someone would have made this up and would have attributed this to the Buddha whom, whom they've already come to love for the Four Noble Truths and all the sort of general things. And so uh, it's interesting to see their reaction, uh, which in many ways I think uh, mirrors the reaction to uh, the mainstream Buddhist tradition when the, when the Lotus Sutra uh, first, first uh, appeared, right? There's a scene where the uh, before the Buddha begins teaching, all these monks and nuns just walk out. And uh, so I think there's a certain moment in my lecture when I'm teaching the Lotus Sutra when the students want to walk out, but of course they're not allowed to do that without affecting their grade. <laughs> Fantastic. So history is only partially able to repeat itself. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 We're talking about the Buddha. I mean, this, this is a good point to start talking about uh, some of your books in a little bit more detail. That There are two that, that come at the Buddha, and I'll name them both just in case listeners are not familiar with them. The first one is Strange Tales of an Oriental Idol, an anthology of early European portrayals of the Buddha. And From Stone to Flesh, a short history of the Buddha. Again, I've got a couple of questions which I've cheekily, and this is very bad of me, I apologize, sort of snuck into a single question form. I'm going to break them up this time. And the first one, well, it's an interesting one, but it, it might be nice just to get it out of the way. Firstly, do you believe that this figure of the Buddha actually existed? I do believe it, uh, but it's a belief, uh, so it's right. it's just something that I that I take on faith. I mean, the the problem, as I just alluded to, is that we just don't have much to go on uh, when we think about Jesus. Uh, at least we have the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, who's writing, I think, sometime around 90 CE in which uh, that is within living memory of Jesus. And he mentions both Jesus and John the Baptist. And so we know that there was a figure called Jesus living at that time. Uh, in the case of the Buddha, the first reference that we have to the Buddha are in the rock edicts of Ashoka. And Ashoka, I think his reign began in, in 268 uh, BCE. So, of course, the problem is we don't know when the Buddha died. We don't know when he lived. I mean, you know, we, we see scholars of, of the New Testament writing articles about whether Jesus was born in 3 BC or or, 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 2, or 2 BCE. I mean, they're really talking about probably a five-year little window there. Mm -hmm. In the case of the Buddha, the best scholarship is saying, well, let's, let's place him around, uh, I don't know, uh, 500 to 400 BCE plus or minus uh, 20. Uh, when, when I was a student, we just learned, you look it up, 563 to 43 BCE, that those dates had been moved back a full century over the course of my career. Uh, and when we say plus or minus 20, what does that mean? We have one text, uh, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which says the Buddha lived till he was 80. It's a round number. Is that accurate? Well, that's all we have. Let's go with that. But we don't know that that's the case. And so uh, it's not that we have some historical kernel uh, upon which uh, myths were then kind of just uh, laid on by layer after layer. There is no historical kernel there. And that's a problem, I think, uh, for historians, obviously. Yeah quite a big problem and presumably should be a problem for practitioners too but um, it's interesting also you know the way people get around these sorts of questions right now you write in your your books about the popular imagination which is obviously where the material is available right um right and you talk about the the way that image has developed throughout time and how it hasn't always been favorable how different to the popular imagination today was such a figure according to the historical artifacts that, that have been found and that, that do exist? Well, uh, this 
popular figure, of course, his image has changed over time. And uh, that's something that I'm trying to uh, address in these two books. I mean, both of these books really came out of my work on the great uh, French Sanskritist Eugène Bernouf, mm. uh, who in 1844 wrote uh, Introduction to the History of Indian Buddhism uh, in French. And uh, this was, we look back at this as the Urtext, as the first work of, of Buddhology as an academic discipline in Europe. And when you go, when I, I translated uh, this long book with my colleague Akacha Bufetri in Paris, and um, after having digested that and spent a lot of time with that text, I determined that the popular image that we have of the Buddha, uh, in many ways, both in scholarship and, and in, in the more general public, really comes from Bernouf. Uh, and that it hasn't changed that much uh, since he published his book in 1844, which is quite mm. interesting. Yeah. So uh, I thought, well, but of course the Buddha lived uh, a long time before that. Uh, what were, how did Europeans think about the Buddha before 1844? And that then led me to write uh, from Stone to Flesh, in which I tried to go from the earliest mention of the Buddha by Clement of Alexandria up until Bernouf ending with him. And seeing that for over most of time, the, the Buddha was just a, a first a figure of mystery. Uh, when we look at Buddha images in an in a art museum today, we realize that a, a Japanese Buddha and a, a Thai Buddha and a Tibetan Buddha image, they don't really look that similar, especially if they're not seated side by side, where you can sort of see the, the, uh, the consistencies. Uh, and of course, uh, in the various languages of, of Asia, the Buddha has a different name in Tibetan that it is in Sanskrit, than it is in Thai, than it is in Japanese. And so the various travelers and missionaries who went uh, to Asia over the centuries would encounter this god there, as they called him. And they wrote down the name, and they never really put it together until rather late that it was the same guy. Uh, and so this was just an idol that was worshipped by idolaters. Uh, and it was, again, relatively late that his identity was confirmed. And we have to remember that back then, and we're talking about uh, this the category that I'm about to describe was used into the 19th century, that there were just four religions in the world. Uh, there were Jews, they, actually they were called nations. There were, there were Jews, Christians, Muslims, or they were called Mohammedans at the time, and idolaters. Idolaters also called heathen, sorry, he, pagans and heathens. Mm -hmm. uh, and so these were just people who, you know, they lived in the heath, right? These were the the, the bumpkins out in the country. They, they, you know, from the Christian point of view, uh, Jews were deficient because they had not accepted Jesus as their savior. Uh, Muslims were deficient because they'd come up with another prophet after Jesus. The heathens were just these poor people who just hadn't had the chance to receive the gospel yet. And so they were looked upon with a certain pity. And uh, Roman Catholic missionaries went across Asia to try to convert them. And once they did that, they came to encounter Buddhist texts uh, off the Jesuits, always known as great scholars, uh, learned Chinese, uh, learned Tibetan, uh, in some cases learned Sanskrit, began to read the texts. And of course, it, it is the it is their strategy to to dispute uh, and to discredit the teachings of, of whatever this other religion is. And so it was really at that point that the attacks on the Buddha really began. And he was seen as teaching, uh, they called him a, uh, a Pythagorean. And of course, this had nothing to do with his knowledge of geometry. But at that time, uh, to be a Pythagorean was someone who believed in rebirth, which was, was a heresy because it denied the existence of a permanent heaven and hell. 
and so uh, we find very damning statements about the Buddha, especially among Jesuit writers and other missionaries going up in, into the 19th century. And it's really Bernouf, who's who is a, a good anti-Catholic, uh, you know, good French Enlightenment scholar, uh, who is, is able to see the Buddha as kind of an ethical teacher. One who rejects God, uh, who rejects the caste system, uh, who who has all of these sort of republican values that that we that we uphold today or we upheld then, and he becomes a kind of an alternative Christ uh, for Europeans in the 19th century. This is happening at a time uh, when uh, Europeans are are coming to the conclusion uh, that Jesus was a Jew. Uh, and so uh, in in the wake of anti-Semitism, of race theory, all these things that happen in, in the last half of the 19th century, Jesus becomes uh, – I'm sorry, the Buddha becomes kind of an Aryan Jesus. And so many of the things that we tend to like about the Buddha uh, really come from a time in which those – he was liked for – reasons that we would not really uh, ascribe to today. So that's the, basically the story I, I tell in that book. And uh, in uh, the second book, and the, the Strange Tales of the Oriental Idol, that's an anthology of, of, of the kinds of things I couldn't talk about in the first book. It's just all the sources that I found of these incredibly strange statements that were made about the Buddha. I'll give one example. Um, they read enough to know that the Buddha's mother died a week after he was born. They, they read the standard stories about his birth. They'd also read that he had uh, not emerged by the usual route but had come out uh, from under his mother's right arm. And so uh, putting two and two together in a rather strange way, uh, they, they just decided that he had actually uh, gnawed his way through her rib cage uh, mm -hmm. uh, under her right arm and that uh, she had died as a result of her, her little infant child eating his way out of her, out of her body. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, he was had, had murdered his mother yeah. and that he never got over that guilt. And that was the reason why he, he uh, sort of then uh, proclaimed all of these uh, falsehoods. Wow. Wow. That's quite the interpretation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's all interpretation is what we're learning here. And this brings us back to this uh, this topic of myth that I wanted to ask you something about as well. And perhaps you have more experience of dealing with this kind of thing in the classroom with your undergraduate students and in your public talks. But I think one of the, the challenges we face today is, as I said before, we have a lot of knowledge and yet we, we seem incapable of, of sort of squaring it with our sort of very human needs. And, and some of those needs for a lot of people are maintaining the myths and the stories, right? It kind of gives meaning and value to the kinds of practices they engage in. As a relatively rational person myself, um, I'm sympathetic, but at the same time, Part of me, in a sort of pragmatic mode, asked the question, you know, is it possible for us to accept these kinds of insights that come about from the works of scholars like yourself and still hold on to a couple of these myths anyway? And I wonder, the, the question's a little bit vague, I'm afraid, but we'll see what you make of it. I just wonder how might modern societies like our own manage this relationship with myth and with story without, you know, throwing everything out and becoming cynical and becoming so disenchanted or disillusioned that, you know, there's a sort of this sort of a whole scale refusal, which doesn't seem to do people that much good either. So I guess the question is really about, you know, what do you see in the present and perhaps moving forward in the future about this tension and this friction that modern societies have about keeping that distinction between the secular and the religious, gaining knowledge and giving space for people to believe in stories and myths because it provides a value and sort of, you know, working more generally, I guess, on that distinction between a very vague term, the spiritual, and this term we're all very familiar with, the material. Can you make much of that sort of slightly vague question? 
Well, you know, I think that uh, there are ways uh, for us to maintain our historical consciousness and also uh, find meaning in myth. Uh, You know, I think that we have to continue to recognize that as humans, we are storytelling people. That's what we do. Uh, That's what that's what distinguishes us from from other species. And that story, therefore, becomes uh, so central to to our own being in many important ways. I was speaking to a linguist the other day about animal language, uh, and I was was informed that uh, humans can do uh, three things in their language that animals cannot do. We can talk about the past, we can talk about the future, and we can talk about things that don't exist. Hmm. And I think in many ways uh, that that last one is so central to exactly the question that you're asking, uh, that we can imagine these things and that imagination can be profoundly meaningful to us without having to believe them uh, in the sense that that, that you're talking about. Uh, you know, I think in, in many ways, uh, in the case of Buddhism, we want to be able to maintain this tension with trying to imagine what it would be like to, for example, believe that there are eight hot hells and eight cold hells and four neighboring hells and several trifling hells. But at the same time, recognizing where those ideas come from uh, and what function they play in the development of a tradition. So I think it's possible to keep two thoughts in the mind simultaneously. One is what I keep referring to as historical consciousness, and the other is the ability to to find great meaning in, in myth and in the uh, the genius of the creation of myth. And by that, I mean, uh, again, coming back to the Lotus Sutra, uh, we know that uh, the Mahayana was a a minority movement in India. Uh, We find uh, everybody from Nagarjuna, whenever he lived, uh, rather early, to the the last great commentators in India, including in their major work, the defense of the Mahayana as the word of the Buddha. They wouldn't be doing that unless most people were telling them it's not the word of the Buddha. And so these Mahayana Sutras that we find so psychedelic and inspiring and beautiful and frustrating and and maddening. These are, if we think about these as human creations, if we think about a community of monks and nuns living in India five centuries after the Buddha, who have become completely uh, disgusted with what they see as the conservatism and the hierarchy of the monastic structure, and who are trying to understand who the Buddha was and to have the thought if he was the compassionate person that we understand him to be, he must have wanted us all to be Buddhas, not to just be arhats. And so they imagined or they had a vision or they concocted a story in which the Buddha comes and says, when I told you that there are three vehicles, I didn't really mean it. There are There is just one. And so if we think about what that community must have been like, how courageous it was to come up with that story and to write it in such an utterly informed way in which all of the metaphors of Buddhism and the philosophical points are all there, the vocabulary is perfect, written in beautiful prose and beautiful poetry, and that text to then inspire Buddhist practice across the Buddhist world for centuries, that's something that is very inspiring from a certain perspective If we, if we, we, within the recognition that the Buddha didn't teach it. And so the myth can be acknowledged, but the inspiration can remain. And I think that's the, that's the key, at least for those of us who want to sort of study Buddhist history, study Buddhist texts, and still remain inspired by the tradition. Great. That's interesting. So, I'd also like to talk about the scientific Buddha a little bit, um, his short and happy life. As you mentioned, that book came out of a series of lectures that you, you gave. And I'm going to start by reading a quote about your book. 
So this quote reads as follows. It says, Donald Lopez shows that the Western focus on the scientific Buddha threatens to bleach Buddhism of its vibrancy, complexity, and power, even as the superficial focus on mindfulness turns Buddhism into merely the latest self-help movement. Now, we've had guests talking about mindfulness and some of the problematic aspects of the scientific reading and study of it. Um, how are things looking in 2018 uh, since you wrote that? And do you think the bleaching is still underway? And if so, is it really such a bad thing in your view? So the Scientific Buddha, as I mentioned, was was really the second book that I wrote on the topic. The, the first was just called Buddhism and Science, A Guide for the Perplexed, which I think came out in 2008. And uh, that was – so I'd written Prisoners of Shangri-La. It caused a huge uproar, uh, much more than I ever expected. And I thought, mm. well, I need to take on another major myth. So having done a book about Tibet, let me talk about Buddhism and science. And so that was, again, an historical – exploration of the topic, trying to figure out when people started making these claims, uh, what claims did they make, why did they make them. And what uh, I determined was that uh, this really, again, came out of colonialism. And once we have Buddhism being uh, condemned by missionaries and various Christian thinkers as superstition, as magic, and not as religion, not as philosophy. In the 19th century, Buddhists started to respond. Uh, there were people like uh, Anakataka Dharmapala in Sri Lanka, others who read English well, who confronted these missionaries, had debates with them. We have to remember this was a time in which uh, early anthropology and philosophers were thinking about the evolution of, of, uh, of humanity from magic to religion to science. And that one day science would, would rule the day, religion would be gone. We know how wrong they were, but that was at least their, their rather wishful thinking. And so we have these, these Buddhist thinkers uh, basically deciding, well, they want to call us magic. Let's just skip that in whole religion step entirely and go straight to science. And they could say Buddhism is scientific. There is no God. It talks about material universe. It talks about eons of time. Uh, whatever the, the scientific discoveries of the day were, uh, they were able to claim for Buddhism. So in an effort to kind of understand and in a certain way debunk those claims in the Buddhism and Science book, I simply wanted to point out that the claims being made about Buddhism, Buddhism and science in 1880 uh, were being made in precisely the same terms in 1980 and then in 2010 or 2008 when the book came out. That to me was I could simply say I rest my case. That is the the, the house of cards should should – collapse when that's pointed out because we know that the science of 1880 was very different from the science of, of 1980 or, or 2008, and therefore science is just being used as a placeholder to make a polemical claim on behalf of Buddhists. Uh, so I thought, well, this is going to, you know, this will cause a similar sort of uproar as prisoners did. Of course, it didn't. It, it, it went un, largely unread. And so uh, then it just happened that uh, that Yale asked me to to give these lectures, and so I reiterated some of those points, but then elaborated on them in the, in the the scientific Buddha. And my point there, as the reviewer that you that you quoted uh, states, is that basically uh, Buddhism is an incredibly rich tradition with all sorts of of, uh, of magic and all sorts of things that, are, as I said before, are hallucinogenic, who that 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 have a kind of aesthetic power. Uh, that is, is is really should not ever be sacrificed. That power comes from these things which are not 
scientific in this narrow sense of the term. So if we just want it to be about cause and effect and, you know, the Buddha, you know, knew about nuclear physics. I mean, all of this is, again, this exact same problem of pushing everything back, right, uh, retrospectively, projecting it back in time to the night of the Buddha under that tree where he's somehow understanding Einstein's theory on the night of his enlightenment. That's not necessary for him to do that for us to respect the Buddha. And so in many ways, this is just a kind of an add-on, which I think ends up being a subtraction from the, 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 uh, both the, the richness and, and power of the tradition to make those kinds of claims. So much of the contemporary reality of the way we, we conceive of all these different aspects of Buddhism and mindfulness too, it all seems to trace back to, you know, earlier than middle and late modernity, right? And, right. you know, we just can't seem to escape it. But if the invention of the scientific Buddha is a yet another product of modernity and... Well, I would originally have said something about inaccurate, but since you already told us that we don't have a fully accurate reading of an existent figure in history, we're kind of left with, you know, one interpretation or another. But I guess the question would be this then. So mindfulness has been adopted as a, as a panacea for many things. And, you know, that's a, a debate for another day, perhaps. But would you see or do you see if there are uh, ongoing challenges that more traditional expressions of Buddhism present to our modern condition. And do you think there's something to be said as well about the fact that perhaps some of the, the interest and attraction to Buddhism, which uh, I assume reached a peak perhaps in the, the sort of 70s to the 90s, and might be in decline now. Do you think some of that shifted over to mindfulness? And do you see us losing something in that process? Uh, well, I have to con uh, confess that I'm not a, a close observer of the modern scene. Okay. Uh, I, I, I tend to be kind of lost in my texts and my historical research. And, uh, you know, I was asked uh, by, by Penguin, uh, as I mentioned some years ago, to do an updo, a new version of, of, of Buddhist scriptures, uh, which Edward Konza had done back in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And I think they asked me to do this not because, uh, probably because Konza's book had dropped below a certain sales level. And so, and, and in Konza's, it was, you know, outdated, needed to be updated with more text, especially from Tibet and and Korea and places that were not represented earlier in the scholarship. And so I ended up including in the manuscript I submitted to, to Penguin uh, some things by uh, Alan Watts and uh, Madame Blavatsky and Evans Wentz. And the editor wrote back and said, uh, you know, um, our series is called Penguin Classics, and we really uh, think that you probably should not be including anything uh, from um, – after the uh, the 18th century. And so we'd like you to take out all of these things from the, the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, of course, it's their, their book. And so I took those out. And so I ended up then um, taking those and, and expanding that into a book called The Modern Buddhist Bible, which was an anthology of all these figures and more whom I had extracted from the classics. Uh, and in that uh, book, I wrote a brief introduction, which I tried to come up with some of the various characteristics of, of modern Buddhism. But that was the last time I've really sort of looked at the, at the topic. And I fr frankly think that uh, when we look at Buddhism today, uh, this is much more the task of the sociologist and the, and the anthropologist than it is for the Buddhologist, because scholars of Buddhism are primarily textual scholars and historians. Uh, we don't, we're not really equipped, I think, to talk about uh, the state of Buddhism in, in a sophisticated Way I think all we can do is to tell people, both in the public and in, in, in the academy, of what Buddhism was and what it has been and what it is today, I think, is for everyone to come up with their own sort of view. Uh, so I don't have any, I apologize, any, any pro profound pronouncements on the state of modern Buddhism um, because I don't really, frankly, uh, pay that much attention to it. I, uh, so. 
Okay, well, that's fine. Thank you. Yeah, um, I guess I should have known that already. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, well, let's return to history then. Let's re- return to a, a look at the past and um, some of the figures you just mentioned, actually, in relation to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I mean, obviously, this is a book that's known beyond the confines of Buddhism. Uh, it's had various different manifestations from Jung to, you know, Sogyal. And uh, it's interesting in the way it's been perceived of in the, you know, the, the modern man in imagination. Now, in your biography of the book, you, you continue your excellent analysis of the creation of Tibet in the Western imagination. And some of the figures you just mentioned are, are there, of course. And it's amazing how often these figures pop, pop up, from Walter Evans Wentz to Madame Blavatsky and the uh, Theosophy Organization often seem to be standing at large in the background. And I don't know if you're aware of this. I, I spoke about this uh, with, with another guest of ours a while back. I discovered exactly the same figures in a, in um, a number of historical texts that analyze the history of shamanism and animism and that kind of thing. And all the same figures are there as well. So they seem to have had many fingers in many pies. Now, I'm just kind of curious, you know, as a historian, I can't help but imagine that you develop a sort of affection sometimes for these figures, you know, or as you mentioned before, a certain degree of appreciation of what they were working with at the time they were alive. Um, They also have a very strong legacy in this case, which expands beyond Buddhism into neo-shamanism and the New Age as mentioned. What do you make of these folks and their legacy and the sort of impact that perhaps still lingers today? Well, I have, uh, in general, a lot of respect for them. Uh, Madame Labatt's Colonel Alcott, uh, Evans Wentz. Uh, I've ended up reading a lot of their work uh, in the course of my research. And uh, it, it saddens me to some extent to see them mocked the way they tend to be and dismissed uh, in, in so many, whenever they're mentioned or often when they're mentioned today, uh, because we have to recognize how incredibly influential they were. So uh, William Butler Yeats was a theosophist. Kandinsky was a theosophist. Uh, Mondrian was a theosophist. Uh, the L. Frank Baum, the author of the Oz book, was a theosophist. It was incredibly influential among artists, uh, composers, and writers uh, for, for decades. Um, Annie Besant, who turned out to be more Hindu-leaning, I guess, in, in many of her, her own uh, writings, is a fascinating figure in the history of, of, of women's rights. Uh, so I really you know, hope that they will come to receive the research uh, that, that they deserve, and they, they've received it in some quarters, but I don't think nearly enough. Evans Wentz, you know, this is an interesting case. Uh, as you know, he was an American, uh, and when he went to study in the UK, he saw that it, it was nice to have a hyphenated uh, last name, and so uh, he took he became uh, Walter Evans Wentz uh, and wrote his uh, dissertation on uh, the fairy faith in the in the uh, Celtic countries. And then, you know, had uh, some his father had made a lot of money in real estate, so he was independently wealthy and could go on this trip uh, to the Mystic East and. He was a, a, a devotee of some swamis as a yoga practitioner and kind of stumbled on this Tibetan text and the rest is history. I, I tell the story in great detail. I'm, I'm critical of him because of the, 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 the 
the way in which uh, his his own collaborator, uh, Kazidawa Samdrup, who actually translated the text, is a little bit buried uh, in the work, doesn't receive all the credit that, that is due to him. And it really becomes kind of the text itself is kind of lost among all of Evans Wentz's uh, footnotes and all the forewords that he added in one edition after another. I mean, the fact that the book went through so many editions is is testimony to its its power. Uh, but every time he, he came up with a new edition, he added yet another preface. So one has to plow through all these historical prefaces before we finally get to the work. And then he left some things out. And so there's always been this strange, rather strange sort of compulsion to complete it. And so these new translations by Trunkba and Thurman and then later on, a full translation finally came out. Uh, the text has, has kind of haunted uh, Tibetan Buddhist studies, I think, uh, since its first publication in 1927. And as I try to point out, in Tibet, it really is not that important of a book. I mean, it's not uh, this term, Bardo Trudul, which we have in Tibetan, is is just a generic term. It's not for that particular text. It's uh, it's, it's one particular Nima practice, as you know. And so uh, it, its whole kind of legacy then making its way through Timothy Leary, you know, he wrote this book, The Psychedelic Experience, which was a way to sort of use the Tibetan Book of the Dead as a guide through for an acid trip. And uh, of course, it, it included the famous line, uh, turn off your mind, relax and float downstream, which made its way into the Beatles revolver and uh, tomorrow never knows. And so the cultural history of the work is, is quite interesting, despite its sort of uh, problematic uh, nature as, as, as a text, uh, buddhologically speaking. What did you make of the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, that, that Sogyal? There's a story there, isn't there, to be told as well about whether and to what degree he actually wrote it. What do you make of that text now, and do you have any thoughts on it? Well, it was hugely popular. I mean, of course, in the wake of things that have happened in the past couple of years, I think it's mm. placed in something of a new light. And uh, it's, it's I don't really know who wrote what parts. Uh, it's, it seems likely that he got quite a bit of help. Again, I have a brief discussion of it in Prisoners of Shangri-La, which I'm trying to talk about the various versions that have come out and the problems. I, in some ways, uh, it was he was turning it into a kind of a world spiritual classic and which had resonances uh, across the globe and across history. And that has a certain, uh, I guess, appeal. But at the same time, I thought one loses much of the, the highly and very specific uh, Tibetan character of the work by making those kinds of claims. Okay, well, let's move on to one of the chaps you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation today, uh, Gendun Chopal. Is it Chopal or Kopal? Chopal, uh, yeah, Chopal. Chopal, okay. Yeah. Uh, the Madman's Middle Way, which is another book which I think has uh, received uh, quite a lot of attention and has sparked interesting conversation. This is a character who, well, I, I don't think many folks had even heard of before your book came out. I mean, you certainly described him at one point, if I'm not mistaken, as one of the greatest Tibetan intellectuals of the 20th century. Now, I have read the book, but I'm still sort of left wondering to what degree that claim is true and why it's so. And can you say anything about the impact uh, his work and his writing and his thought has had since his death? And has it had any impact, you know, on the Tibetan community in exile at all and the more intellectual leaning members of that community? Uh, yes. So, uh, so Gideon Trimbell was born in 1903. He died in 1951. Uh, he had a, a tragic life. Uh, he was a Nyingma Tulku uh, who ended up being trained in the Gelugpa Academy. Uh, he uh, then went to Lhasa and studied uh, at Drebuk Monastery. Uh, in 1934, uh, he met the uh, Indian uh, pundit uh, Rahul Sankrit Yayan, who invited him to go with him to India. And he spent the years from uh, 1934 to 1945 in 
South Asia. So he traveled all over. He went to Sri Lanka, uh, learned Sanskrit very well, uh, went back to Tibet in 1945. Uh, was arrested a year later, uh, imprisoned for three years, and then died in uh, in 1951. So, and this, of course, this is before the Chinese came in. So he was imprisoned and and really died as a result of the actions of his own Tibetan people. Uh, I think most modern Tibetans uh, would regard him as uh, certainly the greatest Tibetan poet of the 20th century. A very accomplished painter. Uh, a, a great prose stylist, um, excellent Sanskritists, uh, and uh, the book *Madman's Been Away*, uh, his which is in Tibetan called uh, *The Adornment for Nagarjuna's Thought*, was uh, some his 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 posthumous work uh, after his his untimely death. So uh, I have now done six books about him. Uh, I'll say in my own defense, only four were my were my own idea, and uh, those were all translations. Um, but I think this is a figure who. Uh, really uh, you know had 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 a a knowledge of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition that was almost unmatched during his time uh, because of his uh, dual Nyingma and Gelugpa background and training and who was able to then sort of confront colonial modernity in India and recognize that Tibet had been a great military power uh, before Buddhism came in, uh, went back to Tibet to sort of write a history of his homeland, just as other colonized peoples were writing theirs, and then got into some strange trouble uh, with the authorities. The reason for his his arrest are are debated. Uh, The British probably had some role to play in that. Uh, But uh, he's just a a fabulous writer. And so I began with Madman's Middle Way with the work on Madhyamaka philosophy because, as I mentioned, I've been trained in this particular Gelugpa form of, uh, of uh, the study of emptiness in graduate school, and I'd found that sort of confining, and I, and I, reckon, I knew that Kenan Trimble had written a, a quite a compelling critique of that from the inside as a Gelugpa monk, uh, and so I thought, well, let me translate this, uh, which I did and wrote a commentary, and then as I was, you know, leafing through, his, his, his collected works were not published till 1990, that, that long after his death, and they were published hmm. in Tibet, not in India. Uh, I was looking, leafing through every day, and I came across some poem, and so I thought, well, let me collect all of his poetry, uh, which I which I did uh, in a book called. Um in the Forest of Faded Wisdom. After that, uh, Tupton Jimba, the Dalai Lama's translator, uh, we talked about translating his his great work, his, his great masterpiece, which is called in Tibetan, uh, we call it Grains of Gold in our translation. This is his account, the essays he wrote in India, and it talks about him talking with uh, Sri Lankan monks about Milarepa. And uh, he talks about uh, various pilgrims that had preceded him, and he talks about the Tibetan language, and he talks about the Indian countryside. It's just a, it's a fabulous work. And then he wrote this famous sex manual uh, called uh, the Derbe Danger, the Treatise on Passion, which we published last year as the Passion Book. And so uh, so I've spent a lot of time reading his work. Uh, he is, a, as a poet, as a painter, as a philosopher, uh, really a, a remarkable figure in a remarkable time. I mean, I think we tend to think of, well, once the time of the 13th Lama came and the British came in, young husband came in in 1903, Tibetan Buddhism is kind of over, you know, in terms of Tibet and things sort of happen again after the exile in 59. So I wanted to look at a figure uh, who had lived in that first half of the those difficult times of, of the 20th century. And to really show how vibrant the tradition was, and it, it wasn't dying by any means, uh, and that's uh, just another—he's another sort of harbinger in many ways of the tragedy of Tibet. Could you say something about the intellectual innovation he brought in his reading of Tibetan Buddhism? 
Let's see. Well, let, let me um, let me read you the uh, the opening line from his uh, his work on Madhyamaka. It's, uh, it's it's in poetry. So may I read it in Tibetan first, and then give you the translation? Sure, that's fine. So he says uh, in Tibetan, "Duki tsunja tsumo dakla jamyen medo klinduchin lechin tube kyoto pangse mime dushuk tangdulang rangi dala dangmik zamyang." Dawar minu shagese, jikrung korwe dashen kyobe choksu sheden suipur. So this would translate as this is a, a, a short poem to the Buddha. He says, To the sharp weapons of the demons, you offer delicate flowers in return. Referring, of course, to the Buddha's enlightenment when Mara rains down the, the weapons upon him. Mm-hmm. When the enraged Devadatta pushed down a boulder, you practice silence. This is when the Buddha's evil cousin Devadatta tried to assassinate him by rolling a boulder down uh, down a mountain. Son of the Shakyas, incapable of casting even an angry glance at your enemy, what intelligent person would honor you as protector from fearful samsara? So when you're reading this in Tibetan, you think, wait a minute, there must be a word missing because any Buddhist should be saying, what intelligent person would not honor you as protector from fearful samsara? And yet he says, what intelligent person would honor you as protector from fearful samsara, you who would not respond to your enemies? And this term that I translate as intelligent person rather clumsily in Tibetan is just uh, sheden. Sheden means having a mind. What person in their right mind would honor the Buddha to protect them, would go to the Buddha for protection from samsara? And so... What Ginnan Trumbull is saying in this text and in many different ways is that the Buddha is, is, call, is asking us to completely change our perception of the world. We, we cannot be intelligent in, in the conventional sense. We can't be in our right mind in the, in, the conventional, in the conventional worldly sense in order to benefit from his teachings. He's, causing, call, he's calling for this radical switch. And so in many ways, he's really trying to, I think he wants to argue that there's been a kind of domestication of enlightenment by the Gelugpas and that we have to stop adding qualifications to statements in the Garjana and in the sutras and really take them quite literally and allow that power to be felt from the from these radical statements. Otherwise, he's saying, you know, the Buddha's pure land, as it's described in the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, is just an Indian idea of paradise. It's completely human. Uh, and he says if the if the Buddha's pure land was was in Tibet, uh, there would be uh, we would take the there would be huge vats of yak butter tea. You know, it's it's entirely human centered. We're taking our own sort of wishes and projecting those onto the to that which which cannot be spoken. And so he's trying to really bring the focus of Madhyamaka philosophy and emptiness back to this completely radical critique of our experience and of our of our thoughts uh, in a very in a very direct way. And that got him into a lot of trouble. Uh, fortunately, he was dead by the time the text was published. Uh, but it's been completely denounced by uh, by Gelugpas and beloved by Nyingmas. This is an extra question. Uh, what do you make of Majjhimaka thought today? And how do you see it as relating to other forms of, of knowledge about the world and about being and so forth? 
Uh, well, yeah, that was what I, you know, this is sort of what I did my dissertation on long ago. It's something that I continue to, to translate. You know, I think the one of the projects that we haven't talked about, which is, is I think in some ways relevant to your question, is the work that Jimba and I did on uh, on Ippolito Desideri, this uh, Italian Jesuit uh, missionary to Tibet in the early 18th century. Right, and he wrote he wrote a, a critique in perfect Tibetan of Madhyamaka philosophy, and uh, that, in many ways, I think, was very inspiring to both of us because, you know, back when I was in graduate school, people would say, well, you know, Nagarjuna sounds like Kant, or it sounds like this or that. It was just kind of a vague, uh, this sounds like that kind of uh, approach. Uh, and the issue with comparative philosophy, which is entirely another conversation, obviously, is that uh, you really need to be fully versed in both traditions to 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 look at things, and and I think in a in a in the most sort of sophisticated way. And that's only happened, I think, in in, in recent years, where we have excellent young scholars who who know their West philosophy very well, know their Sanskrit, know their Tibetan, and so some new things are happening now. But I think what was so inspiring and strange about about Desideri is here's somebody who goes to Tibet, learns classical Tibetan quite well. He's an Aristotelian. He's a he's a you know follower of St. Thomas Aquinas. And yet he's able to write in Tibetan a critique of emptiness and uh, and and reincarnation, uh, which is fascinating. Unfortunately, uh, it was written in Tibetan uh, for Tibetans. They never read it. He took the text with him when he was expelled from Tibet. Uh, but it's it's an example of uh, going back again to uh, the early 1700s of someone becoming fully versed in both traditions and and then taking on the problem. And I think we're only seeing that happen again uh, in the 21st century. Time is ticking away, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. My favourite work of yours is actually the first one I read, and it's Prisoners of Shangri-La, Tibetan Buddhism in the West. And I think one of the reasons for that is I actually read that book as a form of practice, so I actually used it in a way to dismantle some of the myths I'd been uncritically holding. And we might even say, actually, that that book was a catalyst for my critical engagement with Western Buddhism and you know this this Western imagination of Tibet more generally. I don't know how many other folks read it that way, as you rightly said. I mean, there was some controversy at the time it came out, but I can't help but think it must have worked in the background, even in the minds of those who were quite resistant to some of its historical analysis. So, although it was published back in 1998, I'm surprised to find myself thinking that many of its insights are still relevant today and uh, are still challenging in a sense. This this ongoing attachment many Westerners have to this romantic ideal of Tibet. But I wonder to what degree you think the sort of the, the insights of that book are still relevant today and, and if they've transmuted at all and, and taken on different forms. I mean, do you think there's been a sort of uh, a more willing acceptance on the part of Tibetan Western Tibetan Buddhist practitioners to accept some of this sort of uh, culpability of ours in sort of, you know, elevating Tibetans up into being superhumans and, and the other stuff that's there? Well, as you said, I, I published the book in 1998. And as you know, when you when you write a book, the book is written some probably at least a year before the book comes out. And so I had not really looked at it uh, since 1997. And then the, the University of Chicago Press said that we'd like to do a 20th anniversary uh, edition and would you write a new preface? So I thought, well, I should probably read the book before I write this new preface. So I, I read it recently in preparation for uh, preparing uh, this, this new preface. And I have to say that 
that it seemed entirely pertinent today. Uh, that mm. There was very little had changed uh, that would cause me to say something different uh, today than, than I had said back then. The biggest difference, I think, is – and this uh, – I really wrote the book with a certain political motivation. Uh, hmm. That is, I felt that the fantasy of Tibet was, in fact, detrimental to the cause of Tibetan independence. I thought that as long as Tibet remained this kind of, you know, pie in the sky, mystical idea, uh, the plight of Tibetans in Tibet and in exile was was easy to forget about. And I was uh, continued to be upset by those who said that the Chinese invasion of Tibet and all of the horror that uh, followed in its wake was actually a good thing because it brought Tibetan Buddhism to the West. And so there was that was part of my motivation in writing the book. And I talked about that in the introduction. There were uh, chapters of students for free Tibet on all the college campuses in, the, in North America at the time. Uh, that's changed uh, over the past 20 years, sadly. And uh, we don't talk much about Tibetan independence anymore. And so that particular political motivation, I think, is, is moot. Uh, but in going through the chapters on you know, Evans Wentz and uh, the Third Eye and uh, the way that Tibetan art has been understood. All, all these things uh, seemed uh, – that there didn't seem to be that many changes and that was in some way uh, both uh, reassuring and saddening to me simultaneously. Yeah, that point about the, the great forgetting of Tibetan independence and the, the Chinese genocide or whatever we want to call it. It is quite sad. I agree with you. In fact, I'm hoping to, to get somebody on to, to have a, a full conversation about the current state of affairs between China and Tibet. And of course, it's become politically inconvenient to, to mention it, right, with the, mm -hmm. the global rise of China and its you know economic power. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you're confirming basically what, what I intuited and imagined. And, and I agree with your point you made about the fact that it's, it's, um, it's quite horrific once you start to give it any kind of nuanced thought. It's, it's horrific, the idea that people would believe that all of that terror and horror and murder would actually be a good thing. I mean, mm -hmm. good for who, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a highly, you know, sort of Euromero-centric, narcissistic view, and it's... Uh, it's exactly, yeah. Well, on a lighter note, um, as we get to the end of our conversation today, you just mentioned Lobson Rangpa. Uh, that might have actually been one of the first books on, and I'm using my, my scary quotes here, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, when I was very, very young. It was on the shelf amongst my mother's books. Did you read the book? Uh, and if you did, did you read it before you started studying Buddhism? And um, what impact did it have on you in either case? So I, I, I didn't read it uh, before. Okay. And uh, okay. yeah, so when the, when the book came out, uh, of course, there was a lot of talk about that chapter on Rampa and the Third Eye. And I gave some lectures in, in Europe uh, at the time. And European scholars, both in the UK and on the continent, would often come up afterwards. These are some fairly famous people whose names I will not divulge, who mm. said, uh, you know, this is how I got interested in Tibetan Buddhism. It was, this was the book <laughs> that did it for me. Right. This is what got yeah. me to study Tibet. And I think that that tended to be more of a, a British and European phenomenon. I think in the United States, we were much more reading Evans Wentz. 
Okay. So Tibetan Book of the Dead was the Ur text for us uh, in that in that particular form of inspiration. And it was Rampa uh, on the other side. Uh, but I was very, uh, so I, I read the book uh, because I felt I knew it was so famous. I read it in order to have a chapter on that in Prisoners. And I was able to contact Hugh Richardson, the, the very famous British diplomat to Tibet who was still living at the time and told him about my project. And he very kindly sent me the the private detective report that he had commissioned in order to uh, expose Rampa uh, when hmm. the first when the book came out, and so I was able to use that uh, in that particular chapter. Uh, but yeah. again, he's a fascinating figure, and I think for a variety of reasons deserves a lot more attention than he's received. Uh, but as as I think I, I have mentioned, uh, I. When I taught, uh, I teach a course called Intro to Tibetan Buddhism uh, here at Michigan, and um, I, I, at one time I actually used the third eye as one of the assigned texts without telling the students anything about it. Mm. And among the many books that we read in the in the course, this was by far their favorite. Uh, this is they loved it. They believed every word of it. Uh, and so, of course, oh, I had uh, I had to disillusion them, which I have to say I did with some pleasure. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. And it's interesting that point you made about it being more of a European uh, phenomenon. Uh, I had no idea about that. I think they could probably make a very good film about the life of Lobsang Rampa, right? They could, yeah. I mean, the whole, uh, you know, his growing up and uh, the accident that caused him to ha start having these visions and his cats. I mean, there, there's, there's a great uh, biopic to be made about him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, we can't end our discussion, really, since we've touched on Tibet so much today, without talking about something that's this, this current. I wonder what your views are on cultural appropriation with regards to, to Buddhism, but let's be more specific, let's, let's stick with Tibetan Buddhism, which I think culturally is, is perhaps the more problematic form of Buddhism in terms of that kind of behavior. Um, it does seem that Tibetan Buddhism being so intertwined with cultural customs from Tibet, it can't really, I don't know, I think you could probably argue that it can't really fully exist apart from Tibetans. I wonder to some degree whether once we start to come to terms with our historical understanding or the historical consciousness, as you were saying, uh, the the figures and the images and the practices and the language, whether it wouldn't be appropriate at some point to avoid the risk of cultural appropriation for Westerners to perhaps even risk developing some new form or Western form of tantric Buddhism. What are your thoughts on then cultural appropriation and this, this idea? Well, we often see these conversations come up in which people are trying to look at Buddhism and uh, separate off the cultural from the essential. That is, what are the cultural trappings that can be left behind in order right. to leave yeah. what is essential about the Dharma? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that is an entirely futile enterprise. <laughs> uh, I think we have to acknowledge that Buddhism is 100% cultural mm. uh, and that the, the essential thing is always going to elude us. And so... Uh, going back to the Eugène Bernouf, uh, whose work I translated with uh, Katya Bufitri, his 1844 classic, uh, he says somewhere in the preface that Buddhism is above all an Indian religion. And of course it is, uh, and yet for reasons that we continue to think about, it spread around the world. Why did that happen? That's a, a question that we have to ponder. And as it moves to each place, it takes on the culture of that new place. It absorbs that culture like a sponge. The, the Buddhists have been able to absorb the, the, the local pantheons of whether it's Tibet or China or Japan and bring them into their, their cosmos. And so 
trying to identify is it the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. You know, we don't find Tibetans talking about the Eightfold Path very much, frankly, right? Uh, if we try to identify what is it that all these traditions have in common, they all have some retrospection toward the figure of the Buddha. But who is that Buddha, right? Is 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 it the Buddha who achieved uh, uh, enlightenment through? tantric practice as the tantras tell us or was he under the tree practicing mindfulness i mean all of those things again you come back and there's nothing to hold on to and so i think it's in some ways the inessentialism of buddhism which has obviously philosophical uh, implications is, is what we have to kind of recognize and not worry about cultural appropriation because it's it's always been that it's only been that throughout its 2500 year old history so tantric you know again uh I've, I wrote my master's thesis on Tantra in 1977. I still don't know what Tantra really is. And so uh, <laughs> I continue to sort of struggle with that question. And so what a Tantric mm -hmm. Buddhism would look like in the West is something I would have no idea what that would even be like. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's an interesting confession to make. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I meant the, the prior bit, not the second bit. Yeah. <laughs> Why are we still at this point then where Tantra remains so elusive? You used a whole range of adjectives to describe it earlier on in our conversation, but is it primarily because the lack of historical resources that we have to contextualize it? Or is it the fact that it's always been something that's been highly ambiguous and interpretive and local? Right. So there's a lot of scholarship pondering this question. And I think mm. uh, those of us who've worked on it remain uh, puzzled in many ways because we don't know exactly when it started because we don't know exactly what it is. Uh, we mm. know that there was a huge amount of, uh, of appropriation from uh, from Hindu texts, especially uh Shiva worships worship of the god Shiva, in which we see uh, Hindu tantras, in which they just take Shiva out and put Buddha in, and they're just other, otherwise just plagiarized. Yeah. Um, and when we go to uh, East Asia, where tantra is, of course, very important in China um, and in Japan, they don't call it that; they just call it esoteric Buddhism. And we see it's mm -hmm. mostly about long life practices and making rain and preventing invasion and earthquakes and plagues. Uh, it's all of these things that we would tend to put under the category of of magic in the old days. And these are elements of Buddhism that we can find going all the way back uh, to the time of the Buddha, at least from the early text, where the Buddha warned, warns monks about doing these kinds of things. So you should not practice astrology and you should not be practicing healing. Uh, that's all in the Vinaya. And so exactly what this thing is that we call use this word tantra, which just means like a manual or a handbook, and how that is distinctly Buddhist is a huge question. Uh, because of the sexual, you know, the sexual side is definitely there. Uh, it's not. It's a. It's a, an important, but not uh, the overwhelmingly most important part of, of what we think of tantra to be. Uh, and I think it's because of that sexual aspect that it's, it's gained so much sort of uh, sort of publicity in the West, and that continues to be the case. Yeah, interesting. So cultural appropriation, as you just pointed out, was happening way back in the day from the Shaiva cults. Absolutely, 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 right. Yeah, perhaps to some degree that ambiguity plays in its favor, anyway, right? Sure. It leaves that sense of mystery and that, that, that sort of infinite interpretation. Right. Yeah. Well, look, we've got to the, the last question, which you, you, you've kind of answered already, really, throughout the conversation, which was where to next and which projects are you working on? So I'll give you the opportunity to mention anything else that you might not have mentioned if you want to. But one question that might be interesting, considering you are our last guest in a series with academics, and, and since you mentioned young academics, might be this one to start with. Uh, which young academics of Buddhism more generally 
stand out for you as undertaking interesting work at the moment? Is there is there any interesting projects that you think the listeners might want to pay attention to? Because no doubt, as you're aware, a lot of the academic work gets ignored by practitioners, even those who perhaps are interested because they're not quite sure where to look. Um, so if you had somebody to, to recommend, that would be great in any projects to recommend too. And is there anything else you're working on or you're looking to work on that you haven't mentioned in the conversation today that you might like to share with us? Well, I, I don't want to mention any names because I will leave someone out whom I, whom I should be mentioning. And so I think right, I'd, I'd rather yes. I'd rather okay. not uh, mention people by name. But I will say that uh, I've been I'm coming up on uh, 40 years uh, of, of teaching and writing about Buddhism. And uh, oh. this is really uh, something of a golden age in terms of scholarship, uh, because we mm-hmm. have so many scholars who are working on elements of Buddhism that no one no one looked at in the past. Uh, it was very much a real India, China, Japan kind of thing. Tibetan Buddhism was really uh, not considered uh, an appropriate topic so much when I was starting out. Uh, it was not classical enough. It was just a place where they had good translations of sutras that were lost. And that was the purpose of, or the great, you know, the great value of, of learning Tibetan. But now we have people uh, l- working in all the vernaculars of the Buddhist world. Uh, it was also, again, as I told you the story about having to remove anything uh, post-18th century from uh, Penguin Classics, there was really uh, a real prejudice against working on, quote-unquote, modern Buddhism, to, uh, looking at Republican uh, China, looking at Japan during the Meiji, uh, looking at uh, Thailand uh, during during the, uh, the 19th, 18th and 19th century. All that work is being done. And so uh, from the point of view of of what we know about Buddhism and know about the Buddhist world and Buddhist literature, uh, this is a, a fantastic time. In the case of my own field of Tibetan Buddhism, we've had this whole interesting phenomenon of people who uh, are excellent translators of Tibetan who don't have a PhD. That is, you know, when I was going through uh, my own training, this is how you learned, was that you went to graduate school. We have so many lamas who have now come to the West and taught their students Tibetan well, and we have presses that are publishing all sorts of translations, very good translations of the classics of the tradition. So uh, there's a real uh, almost embarrassment of riches in terms of what's available for people interested in Buddhism of, of, of any tradition and, of, and in any language. So it's a, it's a good time to be interested in the Dharma. That's a, that's a very safe answer, but you're right. I did put you on the spot. And as you rightly said, if you mention someone, you're going to leave out someone else. So we don't want anybody right. to be offended. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, look, um, Donald, it's been uh, good speaking to you and I appreciate you giving up your time for the podcast. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, great. And I look forward to, to picking up the, specifically the book on the Lotus Sutra. I'm going to look forward to reading that when it gets published later this year.
blind anyways This endless place This endless place Ghosts They don't waver They don't wait This endless place This endless place When I fall I'll take you When I fall 